This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast that unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. I'm Rebecca Minkoff, founder of Rebecca Minkoff, a lifestyle brand inspiring women to lead a more fearless life. I think you just have to be fearless in, in asking, and the worst thing that someone can say is no, and there's a million more people that you can go to for help, and now more than ever, I feel like there's a real sense of camaraderie around women and wanting to help and support each other, and no the first time doesn't mean it'll be no the second time. You know, we've we've had relationships with, whether it was a store or a banking relationship, or, you know, even editors say no, 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 and then one day it's yes. So I think you have to continue to ask. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Designer Rebecca Minkoff is an industry leader and co-founder of Rebecca Minkoff, a global brand of apparel, handbags, footwear, jewelry, and accessories. Rebecca disrupted the fashion industry, merging tech with fashion, and created a multi-million dollar bag and clothing line from scratch. She discusses the biggest challenges she faced to get known in the industry and how today she's committed to motivating female entrepreneurs to create their companies. Rebecca, when did you first know you wanted to be a designer? I really became fascinated with sewing and design when I was around eight. I wanted this dress. My mom refused to buy it for me and said, you know, I'll teach you how to sew. That was not the words I wanted to hear, but I became obsessed with the idea that I could create my own clothes. And growing up being painfully thin, uh, while I wish that were a problem I had now, it was a great power to be able to customize my clothes, make them fit me, because nothing really would fit me for my age. So it inspired a lot of confidence, and I just decided decided at that point that that was something I was going to consider doing, you know, later on in life. You moved to New York when you were 18 to pursue your design dreams. What did your family think? My parents said, go for it. We're not funding any of this. So find a place to stay and uh, we'll be up in a month to see if you're still alive. But that wasn't anything that was new or shocking because I had been raised that way with that mentality of if you want it, do it. My aunts and uncles were cringing. You need to go to college. You have to get a proper education. My, They said my grandmother would be rolling over in her grave if she knew. So I decided not to listen to them and just, you know, go for it. How did you make up your mind not to listen to them? Well, they were my aunts and uncles, so I didn't have to listen to them. I could only take their feedback. I think if my parents had pushed me or didn't let me go or had said, no, you can't, then I probably would have had more pause. You lived on a tight budget, very tight budget when you started out. How tight was that? I made $6 an hour at my design job. My rent at the time was about $800 a month. So I think that leaves you with um, ramen and bagels and cream cheese. And uh, then sneaking into my landlady's kitchen and eating her food at night. I heard you were fired from an early job. I was fired from the job that paid me $6 an hour, but it was after three years and I had risen through the ranks. And I had a very great relationship with the CEO and she was a huge mentor of mine. And she said, you're ready to do this. I can see you're far more passionate about your designs than this company's. You know, you're fired, but go out and do it and I'm here for you. So it was it was positive. So did you did it feel positive at that moment? At that moment, it felt like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to support myself? But thank you for being not angry at me, and thank you for being willing to help me if I need help. I read you put everything you had into your business early on, and you realized that was a mistake. Tell us about that. I think early on, without having done enough research, you know, I 
prepared my first season as if I had orders. So, you know, had patterns made, graded things, which I got things made in every size that you needed in case someone ordered a two, four, six, and eight. I had these fancy lookbooks printed, and I think I could have probably taken it a lot slower and saved, you know, the $10,000 I had saved up, you know, through my childhood so that I didn't just go all in with my first line and then I got, you know, one order for one size. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to see an ROI on, on everything I just put into it. So I read also early on you ran out of money. Yes. What did that feel like? That felt scary, especially when Con Ed comes and knocks at your door. This is true. They have these large men, and they come and knock at your door, and they say, we won't leave until you pay us. So I wrote a check that I didn't have money in my account to pay for, and then I ran. Uh, I had a small credit card with a small over advance, and I literally just pulled out the same amount so that I wouldn't bounce that check and have those men come back. So then I heard you called your dad for help. I did. Uh, My dad said, no, I'm not going to help you, but your brother might. Again, it wasn't shocking that my dad said no. And my brother said, you know, yes, and kind of asked me a ton of questions and, and then started helping me by loaning me his own personal money. He had a technology company. And so he was able in the early years to fund sort of the first production runs of the handbags. Was it difficult to ask your brother for help? No, at the time it wasn't at all. I mean, I was... I knew I was onto something, and I think he could hear the passion in my voice, and he could see that this had potential. So I think it was probably harder to ask my dad. What do you say to women who have trouble asking other people for help? I think you just have to be fearless in, in asking, and the worst thing that someone can say is no, and there's a million more people that you can go to for help. And now more than ever, I feel like there's a real sense of camaraderie around women and wanting to help and support each other. And no the first time doesn't mean it'll be no the second time. You know, we've we've had relationships with whether it was a store or a banking relationship or, you know, even editors say no, 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 no. And then one day it's yes. So I think you have to continue to ask. How do you know when to keep going and when to give up? I think you keep going until you can't. You know, I think you have to come to a point where, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, no one wants your product and you've knocked on every door and you've exhausted and like, you know, turned every no stone has been left unturned. I think you have to stop if you realize you're doing the same exact thing as somebody else and you're not any different than them. So I think if you find your white space and you find that there's a need for your product and you knock on enough doors, something will happen. What advice do you have for women who are going into business with family? I have so much advice for women going (laughs) into business with family. I think you have to make sure that, you know, this relationship becomes something that you spend more time with your business partner than you do with your husband or your partner at times. And so you have to have a very strong relationship and you have to be really good. And I'm not saying we're perfect at all about separating family dynamics and family birth orders with business and how you deal with each other and the communication. So, you know, we go to couples counseling a few times a year when we when we stop getting along and that's always kind of put us back on track. But I think, you know, if you're going to spend eight to 10 hours every day with someone that you want to make sure you're starting off on the right page, that you know and have the same kind of goals going in and that you're open about goals and ideas changing as they come up. Does your husband ever say, hey, you spend more time with your brother than you do with me? You know, he's always been really supportive, so he's never once actually said that. And I think when he and I both got together, we were both signing up for two entrepreneurs, kind of putting work in front of us at the time. And now we have a family, so our kids are our priority, but really making sure that, you know, we do get to see each other every once in a while. You said sometimes you hit moments when you were like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Yes. Wondering, how did you psych yourself up again when you hit those moments? I think in those moments, thank 
thankfully, my brother or one of our other partners, um, who's the president of our company, they weren't down. So at all times between the three of us, if one of us was down, the other two were kind of there to prop each other up. And uh, that made all the difference because I'd be like, I don't think, you know, we're going to make it. You know, how are we going to pay these bills or how are we going to ship these goods on time? And there was always one of them there kind of like, don't worry, we're going to figure this out. How risky is it to be an entrepreneur? I think it's risky, but, you know, it's no more risky than uh, going to work for, you know, an exciting company and almost viewing your job within that company as an entrepreneur. And I think that, you know, you can fail in both areas and you can learn a lot working for other companies and you can learn even more being an entrepreneur. So I think it's risky if you make unsafe bets and you're not prepared and you kind of just don't know what you're getting into. But I think if you are smart and read a lot and study and know what you're doing, then it's not risky at all. I've heard you recommend women do act like that. They act like entrepreneurs within their own bigger organization that may not be their own business. How come? Can you elaborate on that? I think when I meet people that have been taught to just stay in their lane and think inside their box, for instance, you know, if you're in PR, just do PR. I think where we've seen success within our company is when, you know, the people that I work with go outside of their comfort zone. So whether it's a partnership or a collaboration or an idea from, you know, the sales team coming from, let's say, the PR department, I think we want to welcome and foster that within the company. And so we've had a lot of great things occur because of that. What do you say to people who say you're an overnight success? I'll say you are totally wrong. Uh, You have no idea how hard and long we've worked for 13 years and that you as an entrepreneur have to be willing to work through holidays, nights, weekends, and put everything in the beginning at least until you have a team that can help you that this is your baby and this is first. Do you think there is such thing as overnight success? I think it's few and far between, uh, less so today. I think, you know, there were those brands that had their Oprah moment, and they probably were overnight successes. But I think that now with the landscape of social media and the noise of, you know, everything is accessible at all times, to have that breakthrough seems like it's happening less often. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Spend time with Alexa? Make tech news briefing part of your flash briefing on the Amazon Echo. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. I read early on that a celebrity asked you to, d- to design a handbag, and you said yes, even though you had never done so before. Were you afraid to mess up? I was not afraid to mess up, but I was scared because it was my last $800 to make the two samples. And when I overnighted the the sample to her, uh, it didn't make the delivery. So it was for a film she was doing and, uh, of course, did not make it into the film. So that was that was far more devastating than me messing up, you know, designing the bag. How did you bounce back from that not getting it in the film? I decided that I had just 
purchased my most expensive designer bag. I started wearing it around the city and because I had two made, one for her, one one for me to pitch with uh, to magazines. And um, enough people stopped me that I said, you know what, it might not have made it in the movie, but people like this bag and they want it. So let me see how else I can make it this successful. You said when opportunity knocks, you have to swing that door wide open. Please explain. I think sometimes the breakthroughs that we've had have been these opportunities that maybe didn't start out that way. I spoke at a conference and they said, a woman is here who, you know, runs this huge conference. And I said, this is my dream to always speak at the conference. I have to meet her. And so what turned out into a casual meeting worked out into me speaking at this conference I'd always dreamed of, of talking at. So I think, you know, these little doors open and how how enthusiastic and how forward you are in asking for what you want usually assures that they become bigger opportunities. Should women be forward? 100%. Men are forward all the time. I think, you know, I don't know where in our education or or being raised we were taught not to be forward. I'm definitely raising my daughter the opposite, uh, maybe too much, so that, you know, she never feels that she shouldn't be forward. But I think that someone else is always going to grab the opportunity, whether it's a younger woman, a younger man, or an older man, you know, it doesn't matter the gender. Someone who's hungry is going to grab that opportunity, so you have to take it upon yourself to do it, because no one's going to ask for you. And if they do, that's great, but you can't depend on that. So even when you're famous, people don't necessarily ask for you. You still have to go after things. I think I still have a mentality that, you know, yes, we're successful, but I still have to, you know, I feel like I'm still clawing up the mountain of success and asking for things all the time that that I want to accomplish. There's no, you don't hit a moment where there's a silver platter handed to you of like, this is all you have to do today. And everything that you want is happening for you. You said networking has played an important role in your life. What's been the most important network or group for you to be a part of? I think what's been really nice, uh, especially lately, has been we launched um, something called RM Superwomen almost two years ago. I was sort of sick of the fashion industry events and the exclusiveness of it all and it not being necessarily the warm and open environment I was craving. So I started throwing these dinners where it was different female CEOs, different entrepreneurs that were female, and just having different minds come together. And then we opened that up to our you know, our customers. So I would interview uh, a female CEO or a female entrepreneur and have, you know, my my consumer learn from her. And then we took it digital on Instagram and on Facebook. And I think the women I've gotten to meet through this that have either been my friends or been acquaintances and getting to know them more through this process has been really inspiring. It's been women, you know, from the president of the WNBA, you know, to the CEO of Birchbox. I think it's been a well-rounded group of women that have kept me inspired. You said it's important to keep people with your best interests in mind around you. How have you gotten burned in business? I've gotten burned a few ways. I think we've had some people that, uh, you know, within the company that came in with certain stated intentions and then turned into, is it Hyde, Jacqueline Hyde? So I think that, you know, you think you're getting in bed with someone and then you see a monster underneath the covers. So I think misestimating who we've hired, letting them work with us too long and sort of being like, nah, they can't be that bad, you know, whether it was stealing or lying or, you know, undermining employees or being mean. So I think that, you know, that's been probably the worst of it. How do you figure out who the good people are? I think the good people are genuine. They're honest. They have your back. They go above and beyond. They treat this as something that's not just your company, but something that they're really proud to be a part of. And you see it in their actions, right? You have to look at what they're producing and go, oh, this product is really great. And people that they work with and for and the people underneath them really think that they're a good person. 
You said when you used to go to playgrounds with your nephews, you were bored. But that changed with your own kids. <laughs> How? I think it happens before you're a parent. You can't figure out why, you know, any parent is excited about a playground or Disneyland or uh, why is everything about this kid? And then the minute you have it, you're like, oh, my God, everything is about this child that I just had. So for me, anything that they're interested in gets me really excited. You said acceptance is the first step in transitioning to being a working mom. How so? I think you have to accept that any sort of balance, especially as an entrepreneur, is not something you should try and achieve, and that's not a negative. I think balance and that word being used for working moms has set a lot of people up to fail, and I think you have to do your best. You have to figure out what your own what your own boundaries are, and for every woman, it's different. Someone will like to work more, some less, and so I think it's about testing those boundaries and feeling them out and knowing when to say no um, and when something needs to change. You said it's important for women to compliment the rightness in another woman. What do you mean by that? I think that there's, you know, we're talking about right now, and there's, you know, a dialogue going on about men keeping women down and, you know, misogyny. And I think there's another conversation that's going to have to be had sooner rather than later, that women are keeping each other down. And that when it is a female-dominated environment, there's a whole other set of issues, which I have 80 employees and about 70 are females, that come up when it's not about men. And how do you deal with each other? And how are you respectful? And what is normal and what is not normal? And I think that's the next conversation that needs to be had, because there is still fighting. There's still people, you know, throwing each other under the bus. There's still the usual things, but now it's our own gender doing it to each other. Any idea on how to stop that from happening? I think by starting a dialogue uh, that it is happening. And I think, you know, for me, it's sitting down with the, the, I guess, the people that are being that way and be like, this is not how I want this to go in my company. And more of the leaders to show examples of it doesn't have to be like this. Fashion is so fast-paced. How do you stay ahead of the trend? Oh, man. Um, it's, you know, it's me and a great team and we're constantly looking at trends, you know, seeing what's happening on the street. There's also something that you just sort of feel is happening that I can't explain, but definitely a lot of research, traveling to different places, getting out of kind of your zone. And really, once you've identified as a brand what you stand for, you know that if something is a trend that's not right for your brand, then you don't have to go chase it. So I think, you know, we've been very clear on what our brand looks and feels like. And so now, you know, we want to just talk to that girl. And if a trend applies, great. But we really just want to talk to this girl whose style we, we've sort of worked out over the last couple of years of, of who she is. Fast fashion can have somewhat an adversarial relationship with designers. How do you handle this? I think, you know, fast fashion is always going to be looking at what designers are doing, always copying, making it cheaper, making it faster. And I think that, you know, our goal with switching the fashion calendar and doing See Now, Buy Now made it so that we couldn't be knocked off at least faster. And, you know, we got to market before we could be copied. And I think having a a connection to a brand is now more important than ever. We want our customer not just to connect to the brand, but connect to me and connect for what we stand for as a brand. And we feel like if she has that authentic relationship with us, then, you know, when she's choosing between the knockoff and us, you know, she'll pay a little bit more, she'll get the quality, but she's also buying into this. You know, I like what this brand means to me. You collect a lot of data on your customers. What do you do with that data? We just analyze it so that we can better service our customer, whether it's her shopping preferences, you know, the looks she puts together in our dressing rooms. You know, if something doesn't fit, we can figure that out because 40 items go in and 40 items don't get purchased. So I think it really is 
optimizing in a way how we service her better. How do you know when to take in financial partners to help you grow? I think you should always, always, always have a very firm business strategy, have a proof of success. I feel like I meet a lot of people who take in money right away and dilute themselves into a situation where maybe they're not the majority. And I think that in the do it the opposite way, you know, get some success under your belt, you know, piece together. You know, in the early days, we, we used my brother's credit cards. He mortgaged his house. And we really had a very solid business before we took in money. And that was more valuable. And we then owned more. And I think if you take that way of working, then you'll be more successful in the long run because you'll own and control more of your brand. What was the number one business lesson you had to learn? I think that you can't get stuck in your lane of I'm just a designer or I'm just the financial person. You have to diversify your skill set. I'm really proud that I can read a spreadsheet now and, you know, know what's happening with sell-through reports and financial reports. And when we were raising uh, funds last year, really being able to pitch investors, you know, it had previously been my brother's job. And I said, I'm going to I'm going to be a part of this. So I think Always gaining a new skill set is really important because the industry is changing so fast and it's so dynamic that you can't just go off into your ivory tower and just have your little fantasy about one thing that you do well. So many designers run into financial problems. How do you make sure that doesn't happen? We have incredible relationships with our factor, which is basically a bank in the fashion industry. They've been with us almost since the beginning, and they have been incredibly supportive and done things they probably shouldn't have done for us. So just, again, making sure you have incredible relationships and treating them as if they were gold. Do you manage your own money personally? Yes. Question mark? I think I do. (laughs) Do you have a favorite investment? You know, I'm just dipping my toe into this arena. I guess I have a stock account. And so someone does manage that for me. And I leave that to him because I said, one day I want to sit down with you and really learn this, but I don't have time to focus on this. I'm sort of just beginning to explore on the personal side what what kind of that looks like. And what motivated you to start? The best part of a terrible relationship that I had uh, many, many years ago was he said I should start, you know, a savings account that I can't touch and start investing. So at the time, he's like, just put whatever you can afford. So it was $10 a month, you know. And as I've achieved more success, I, you know, just keep putting every month, I just set something into that account. And so it's grown. And um, I'm really proud of how it's grown. And I look at it as something I'm never going to touch. That way, you know, I'm not sort of trying to cheat it and and, uh, make moves that are short term and just really into the long term. What's your best social media tip for women entrepreneurs? I think Instagram is probably, you know, emerging or not even emerging. It has emerged as like the number one if you're going to be on any social media. And I think be authentic is one of the buzzwords that's used, but it really is true. I think consumers can smell inauthentic behavior or trying to be something that you're not, and they love it when you're just you. So don't be afraid to put yourself out there, show what you stand for, and And if people don't like you, then that's fine. You can block them. What do you think people don't understand about millennial women? I think that they don't understand that we've been part of the old and we're part of the new. You know, we were around when there was weren't phones uh, like we have today. And so I think it's that we're savvy, that we're, you know, able to see, you know, sort of stride both sides, old and young. We're go-getters. And I think especially for women, this term of empowerment is kind of a negative word. You know, why should you have to be empowered? You already have this power inside of you. Inside of you. It's just a matter of unleashing it. So I think that changing that word and, and what that means when it's, when it's applied towards our generation of, you know, female empowerment. No, we're powerful and we're going to take the bull by the horns and we're going to speak for ourselves and, and push forward. 
you give us one last tip on how we can push forward, speak for ourselves, and be fearless? With the exception of dating, no is just the beginning of yes. Time now for your secrets. I'm Rebecca Minkoff, founder of Rebecca Minkoff. My money secret is putting something in an account that you don't remember and don't save the password for, letting it have an auto withdraw and forget it's even there. Be sure to check back every week for future episodes featuring author Barbara Taylor Bradford and Jimmy Choo founder Tamara Mellon. Hear from women industry leaders about their road to a successful career and their secrets to financial empowerment. Find us on Apple Podcasts, WJ Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. And tune in every week for all new episodes of the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. Chief information officers, long regarded as technical gurus serving the business, are often today's visionaries, evangelists, and change agents for the business. Join Deloitte's Lou DiLorenzo in conversation with tech leaders who've challenged the status quo, redefining the CIO's role by transforming organizations and industries. Where technology and influence converge, new opportunities and value can emerge. 